Good morning. Good to see everyone here. Start off with, a, with some prayer this morning. One of the things I've really appreciated about uh, uh, our pastors is that uh, they take prayer seriously and uh, we get to engage together in prayer. So let's do that now. Father, what a joy it is to call on your name. What a wonder it is that you would even be there to listen, that you love us that much. Father, we live in this small area in this world, and we're thankful for the blessings you've bestowed on us. Despite living in a world separated from, from you, from your holiness, because of our sin, you continue to provide for us. You continue to call us. You continue to accept us. Father, for people in this congregation, there are several that are struggling with health concerns, several are struggling in relationships, struggling with work, struggling in all the ways that this fallen world can throw at us. And we pray, Lord, for your will. We pray for healing. We pray for restoration. We pray for wisdom for everyone in this congregation that is, has any need. We ask for you to intervene and to be there. We pray for peace between people and families. Father, here in this valley, we pray for other, other churches who present your gospel. Today, we pray for Glenn Matlock as the pastor of Ingle Chapel in Milton Freewater. We pray, Lord, thanking you for Glenn's calling to preach the word. We pray for receptive hearers and for fellowship in your name. And Father, we pray for those that are in ministries across the world. In Southeast Asia, we pray for the long-standing missionary relationships we have there for the people doing the work there. We pray for them anonymously to assure that they and those they minister to are not harassed or persecuted. We thank you that the effects of COVID have not hindered them. And we pray that the authorities and leaders who govern these people, that they are assured stability and the freedom they need to follow you without limitation. We pray, Lord, for these ministers, for these missionaries whose son was able to recently adopt two boys following five years of effort. We pray, Lord, that as these ambassadors of yours, as they come to the end of their ministry in the field, that you would call others, that you would bring others forward to continue that work. We thank you, Lord, for the work they're doing with their system, systematic theology class that started just a few days ago. For us, Lord, in this congregation, we pray for your word. We pray that you would be the focus of our attention, that your spirit would teach us and that we would hear you. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. And it's because of your name that we know you hear us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question because questions are the best way to get people engaged. Have you ever been pranked? I imagine you have that, because if you're dealing with kids, you probably get pranked quite a bit. So, get, had practical jokes played upon you before? Um, I was thinking about um, pranks, and Doris reminded me one that uh, happened to her several years ago. And uh, it was done by none other than my son-in-law, our son-in-law, the bearded wonder, Anthony Kaufman, also known as an elder here, and uh, he's, uh, he's got a good sense of humor. I know you know that as he comes up front and speaks, and, and uh, uh, he also knows how much that Doris loves her children, and so she has these pictures all around the house 
of our kids in various stages of their growth. And there's this one quiet corner in the home that has a shelf on it with just such a picture. And this, this picture, you can imagine it, it's like this frilly round mother of pearl frame. And inside is a picture of our youngest daughter's senior photo. You know, it's, she's just has the sweetest smile on her face, wispy hair, you know, in the wind. And well, one April Fool's Day, Anthony surreptitiously replaced that beautiful image of innocence with a photo of his burly mug. <laughs> this photo isn't even nice. It was taken from his webcam on his computer, printed out with his color printer, and he has the cheesiest overdone grin on his face. He looks very pleased with himself, as if he knows what his mother-in-law's response will be when she sees that picture. So imagine, Doris is nestling into that quiet corner one evening, relaxing with a cup of tea, and she looks up and sees that. Her response was, well, audible. <laughs> sort of a uh, high-pitched yelp. <laughs> I'm not sure she could, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she could practically hear Anthony two blocks away snickering. So yes, to this day in good fun, Doris is planning on revenge in a good-hearted way. And every April Fool's Day, Anthony is on alert the way it should be. So what makes a good practical joke? It's basically when you have people who love you that do secretive manipulations so that they can get a response from you. But it's all in good fun. It's all with your best interests or intentions. It's to grow family. It's to grow friendship. It's always goodwill. And it's always based on people you trust. Well, let's shift gears here. What happens when you trust people or trust their ideas and the goodwill isn't there? Is it still a prank? What happens when you start believing ideas that are against everything that you know to be true because of trust in other people and what they say? What happens if you start trusting these ideas? Shouldn't your guard come up if it's somebody that you, you think you trust, but they start saying things that you don't agree with, that you know are wrong? Well, it's no longer a prank. In fact, today, in uh, the book of Colossians, we're going to continue because Paul uh, is exhorting people to be careful about who and what they trust, what ideas they choose to take in. We'll see Paul encouraging everyday strong believers, just like you, to continue to live their lives in Christ, and despite their strength and consistency, he will also command these people to pay careful attention to what they accept and trust in this world. That's what we get to look at today. You see, accepting the wrong teaching or ideas from anything other than the context of God's plans, God's purposes, or God's truth, they're going to keep us from living the life that God has intended for us and living a life that will be a reflection of, his, of him to others. So let's read Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Did you catch that exhortation? The see to it? We'll come back to that. But it's kind of interesting the context that he puts that exhortation in because first we start off by him encouraging people, encouraging things about these people before he exhorts them. He's basically saying that there's no doubt that these people have a wonderful relationship with Jesus. They're doing their part of the gospel. How do we know? Well, the first part of the gospel is receiving Christ. First, they've received Christ, and that word receive isn't just some passive acceptance of, yeah, I guess he is the Lord. You know, I guess he's there. I guess God exists. I guess he has a plan for my life, I guess. This is an active reception. It's an active acceptance. In the Jewish culture and in the Greek culture both, when you were to receive some teaching, receive some teaching from someone else, it was basically a lifelong pursuit you know, is, is more about coming under the teaching of some expert or some knowledgeable person to take in everything that they knew so that you could accept it yourself, so you could live it yourself. So for Paul, when he was under the teaching of the rabbis, he was learning the law, and he was passionate about it. His life was devoted to it. You can also imagine Greek philosophers like Plato having these people sitting before them, catching all of the information from Plato they can, the philosophies of life. Well, when Paul says receive, he doesn't mean, yeah, whatever. He means receive it to the point where you are sitting under the teaching. It's your, it's your life. It's what you've chosen to receive. And he acknowledges that these people have received Jesus, and he recognizes they're devoted to Jesus. He emphasizes their pursuit of Jesus by saying they didn't just receive him as Savior, but they received him and submitted their lives to him as Lord. Lord God himself is the teacher of these people who received him. He's your teacher for you receiving him. You and I took that same step when we became a follower of Jesus. First, we actively received him as our savior. Then we submitted our, ourselves to his lordship. But receiving is the starting point in that relationship. And these people, and Paul points to it, he then describes the rest of the relationship we have with God. He says, since you have been saved, now you must walk in him. Walk in Jesus. Walk in him. That's our part of salvation, to receive him and to walk in him. That idea of walking in the Bible is like saying, now, whenever you get up in the morning, Whatever you do that day, you do it with Jesus. You do it knowing that he is your Lord. You're not alone. You have a relationship with the God of this universe who created it all. He lives in you as the Holy Spirit, and he loves you. So each day, our job in walking with him is to see people the way God sees them. It's to love people the way Jesus loves them. It's to take the truth of knowing Jesus into your life every day. This must have been encouraging for these people. And he is encouraging because he's telling them to continue to walk in Jesus. That's why the therefore is at the first part of the passage. Remember the first chapter of this letter? Paul's heaping praises on these people. These were not weak Christians. These were not people who were infants in the word. These were people who were, were already walking with Christ. Look at what he says. 
in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 of Colossians. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You see, you hear the strength these people have, that Paul is amazed by them. He's, he's happy for them. And then he pours it on even further. He'll come back in, later in chapter 1, and he'll start talking about these incredible descriptions of who they love, of Jesus. He says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all things who continues to hold all things together. You can almost imagine the, the Colossian people as they're reading this letter nodding their heads, a little bit humbled by Paul's pride in them. I can see them affirming everything that Paul describes about their Lord and Savior. I mean, when it comes to following Christ, these people rock. You are a follower of Jesus, and I, I can imagine Paul saying the same thing about you. You rock. You follow the Lord. But in verse 7, the idea shifts. Here's your relationship you receive, you live with him. This is what God does in the relationship. Verse 7 says that you're rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. When you read these things, it sounds like things that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to root yourself. You're supposed to build yourself up. You're supposed to establish yourself in the faith. But those aren't the things you're to do. The way that Paul writes this in the Greek language is, is as to say that you have been rooted and you, always, and, and you will always be rooted. It's not something you do. It's something that God does. He says in the Greek language, it says, you are being built up as if it's something that is actively happening to you today. He says, you are established or firm. All of these activities are things God does in this relationship. Remember, he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. Remember, it is Jesus who's the author and the perfecter of our faith, not you. Yes, you can be an active participant in the relationship, but it's Jesus who gives you your spiritual roots. He's the one who builds you up as a saint. You can't do that. He's the one who establishes you and strengthens you. It's in your weakness that he makes you strong. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. See, that's God's role, is making you, working with you, making you the person that he wants you to be and that you long to be so that you can make a difference for his works. Here's your role in that same verse, that we should walk in them. Doesn't that take the pressure off? I don't have to root myself. I don't have to build myself up. I don't have to establish myself. My role is to receive, actively receive, and to walk in him. Oh. When I first read this passage, I enjoyed all these metaphors Paul used. 
metaphor is when you use a phrase or an object as a figure of speech to designate something else. He used a farming metaphor, he used a construction metaphor, and he used a legal metaphor. Here's the first one. God is the master farmer. He grows his people. He knows that for his people to enjoy their salvation, for them to walk as believers in this fallen world, they need strong roots. So, God is the agronomist. You are rooted in him. He's not only rooted you, but he continually feeds those roots as you walk with him. He gives us the roots by dwelling with us, living in a loving relationship with us. These roots are once for all and will never die. Instead, these roots will help you live. Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19 says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend all the saints, comprehend with all the saints that is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He roots you. The next metaphor, God is the master builder. Instead of building things, he builds souls and spirits of men and women who have received him as their Lord and who walk in him. He's the builder and you are built up in him. That's why the New Testament is filled with this idea of growing and being perfected. That's why, or that's the way a good father in a relationship works. He grows his children for a purpose. He wants to build up his sons and daughters to maturity. And God builds you for a purpose. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Can you build that? Only God can. Only God can build you up to become a part of his holy temple, to be where he lives. Notice that you're not built alone, but you're part of a body. He's not just building you up, he's building all of us up together for the purpose that we can't achieve alone. Your life is built on more than yourself. So you have the, the farmer, you've got the builder, and now another metaphor that describes what God does for those who receive him as they walk in Christ. He uses a legal term to indicate that you're established. You have standing, you're in a strong position. Only God has the authority to put you in that position. Only he has the means to give you the power and strength for that position. For example, consider these strong positions, legal positions when you read these passages. Um, and earlier in Colossians chapter 1, it says, The Father has qualified you, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <laughs> God is acting as somebody who is basically doing the work necessary to qualify you to share in an inheritance, another legal term. How about this from John chapter 1, verse 12? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. <laughs> you have a right to be a children of God, a child of God. Not because of your efforts, not be just because you received him, but because what God has given you because of that receiving, because you walk with him. He's given you the right. What purpose is that right for? You're now part of a royal family. You have standing. You have the rights and you also have the authority. 
and to be in that family, to do what the family needs done. For what purpose? He says, for the purpose of succeeding as an ambassador for Christ, for the purpose of standing against the gates of hell, for the purpose of being a witness to his glory and his gospel. You are established. God makes you worthy to walk with him. He establishes you, he dwells in you, and now live in him. The remaining part of verse 7, we find out how we kind of know if we're walking with Jesus. How do you know you're walking in him? Well, the first part in chapter 7, it says, just as you were taught. (laughs) Sunday schools everywhere, uh, everywhere, Sunday school teachers are rejoicing. Just as you were taught. Remember this about the Colossian people. They never met Jesus while he was on this earth. They never witnessed any of his miracles. They didn't see him die on the cross or share lunch with him when he was on the shore and he called his disciples over. They never had any of those experiences with Jesus. There's no record they ever met Paul. Now that letter that we're reading now may have been the only contact they had with Paul. Even Epaphras, he wasn't an apostle, not likely. In fact, later in chapter 4 in Colossians, we learn that he's just a local guy from Colossae. Just a regular guy. He didn't come from Jerusalem or Galilee. We don't have a record of him walking with Christ. So how did they all meet Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? (laughs) The Colossians met Jesus just like you did. Somebody taught them about Jesus. Somebody taught them about God's plan for this world, for them, and for the future. God's plan of salvation. Somebody had to teach them. Somebody shared the good news with them. We don't know know who it was. We know that Epaphras continues to share that truth, and we know Paul is sharing that truth continually. Who continues to share the gospel with you? Why is that so important? Who's your Epaphras? I hope it's multiple people. One of the things I love about this church is that we have so many people that are teachers. We have so many pe- people that are continually bringing forth the gospel, reminding us to, to remember what we were taught. God wants us to continually dwell upon this good news. That's why the elders in this church place a priority on teaching, praying, and shepherding. As elders and pastors, we know that the way God grows your roots, and builds you up, and establishes you is through the teaching, through the repeating of what truths God has for you. It's through prayer, through sharing our lives in the gospel. To live in Christ is to continually to go back to what you were first taught, your first love, to go back to the gospel. It started with Jesus and the light that was handed off to the apostles. The teaching was handed off to others like the Colossian people into Epaphras. That teaching was taught for generations, and it's through the ages it's followed through until we're here today. And that by the grace of God, that teaching is being handed off to you. So you want to know how to, to walk in Jesus? Live in the gospel. Live there. Live with him. Live in his truth. Know him so well that you know his truth. Here's another way to know you're living and walking in Christ. Since you are rooted, built up, and established by God, you live a life of gratitude. You're abounding in thanksgiving, according to the passage. 
Because of all your learning about Jesus and all the work God is doing, you can respond with nothing less than thankfulness, with gratitude. Not just a little bit. This isn't just Thanksgiving morning once a year. This is abounding. It's overflowing. You can't contain it. Gratitude changes everything about how you live. It's about how you walk through this world. It changes everything. Gratitude's our soul's response to God's goodness to us. It's not an emotion, but gratitude can certainly change your emotions. It's not a change in circumstances, but gratitude can certainly change you within those circumstances. Thanksgiving has an object. Thanksgiving is not just this nebulous thing that we thank nature, we thank the air, we thank our family. Thanksgiving is something that is personal and it's a response to this relationship with God because he's the author of our faith, because he's the Lord of our lives who builds us and strengthens us, because he's sovereign and has the future in his hands, because he was long-suffering and forbearing despite our sin. How can you not be thankful? How can you not respond with gratitude? When you live a life of gratitude, you're likely walking in Christ. On contrast, it's likely that you're not walking in Christ if gratitude is in God is not obvious in your heart. Are you thankful for God? Actually, when we're thankful, I think it opens up our hearts for the good gifts, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that Paul describes in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, think about it. It's hard to be unkind when you're grateful to God. It's difficult to be unkind when your focus is on God and your gratitude for, to Him. It's hard to be impatient when you're satisfied with God's goodness. When we're grateful, we're at peace. Because you received Him, you walked with Him, you recognize that God is doing all what God is doing in you as He roots you, builds you, and establishes you in His strength. Therefore, live within the gospel you were taught and live a life of gratitude. So, so far, everything we're looking at, it's all good. It's all positive. There's not a concern in the world. We have all we need to live a life in Christ. With all that said, with all these successes, what concerns Paul? What does he see in the Colossians that worries him? What does he see in us that he would write a letter and God would use this letter to exhort us? What can take away from that daily walk with Jesus? What can steal away your gratitude or shift you from what you were taught? Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So now you know why Paul said to walk in him because just as you were taught in particular, because there's a lot of other teaching out there. There's a lot of other influences out there. There's a lot of other things that will affect you. It includes things far apart from the goodness and love of God. It includes things that we will not be grateful about. Paul commands even the strongest, most loving follower of Christ to see to it. No other person message or rationalization should go unfiltered without the lens of Christ. Anything we do, see, read, or listen to must be through the lens of Jesus Christ. He's not telling us to 
He's telling us not to unintentionally take the, the teachings. In other words, don't be passive about what we're reading or what we're listening to, what we're hearing from others, who we're following. Don't be passive about that. Instead, you must see them to intentionally consider everything measured against what you know to be true from God, what he taught you. He doesn't even say, he doesn't say not to know these things. He doesn't say to hate these things. He doesn't say that you should run from these things necessarily. He says, just don't ignore the reality of evil. Don't ignore it. Know that it's out there and know that the teachings are not in line with what God wants for his people and for this earth. Instead of, he's telling us to look at them and to discern, to measure them according to Christ. This is the purpose of Paul's letter. This, this passage, everything we read to this point is the purpose of this letter. This exhortation. He says, see to it. And you're going to come back, and we'll come back, um, we'll come back to that. Let me shift gears here. I've got two pages up. Hold on. The purpose of this letter to Colossians, everything that follows will be about this idea of seeing to it so that no other teaching takes us away from God's purposes of our lives. For example, if you read further in chapter 2, what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see Paul reminding us about the deity of Christ in bodily form. It means that there must have been bad teaching about Jesus being fully God and fully man, and people were listening to it. Then we'll find out there's, there's a challenge because there's add-ons to the gospel. Well, this wouldn't happen here, would it? Add-ons to the gospel, things that people are requiring you to do that are beyond the gospel, that would happen here? Well, they were happening there. Circumcision, restricted food, Sabbath days, worship of angels, do not handle, do not touch, Apparently, while most of these people were walking in Christ, there was a problem. People were being distracted by all these add-ons and all these th arguments about what was true. Philosophy is the love of knowledge. Is that a bad thing? To love knowledge? There's PhDs in this room. They've studied for years and years. They're not doing anything wrong by studying and by wanting to know more. But... The moment we love knowledge more than we love God's truth, we will fail. Or when we equate human knowledge to God's truth, when we say it's just as good, it's, it's just as true, how do you know? Only God knows that. We have to keep going back to the Lord and running things through him. That empty deceit that is talking about. It's tied to philosophy. It's vain. It puffs up and it never satisfies. It leaves you empty. You can know everything you can know in this world and still come up empty. Paul says, see to it that you don't be held captive to it. Instead of gratitude for God being the Savior, we start doing add-ons to the salvation. We start arguing about, did God really say? <laughs> All of a sudden, we end up determining that we ourselves should do something to earn that salvation. It's not the abundant life that God promised us because he's the one who does the work, we're not. And then it becomes empty deceit and the joy of salvation is gone. It dilutes your life in the gospel. Instead of living in the gospel, we live in the gospel and all these other things. And instead of living and walking with Christ, we walk all over the place. There's no focus. It minimizes all of the things you were taught and it becomes part of your life, it becomes tradition, and that's not the abundant life. 
Instead of a tradition of joy and freedom that we've been given from Christ, from Paul, from Epaphras, from the Colossians, from your, whoever shared Jesus with you, instead of that freedom, these traditions become the opposite. Instead of the yoke being easy and light, it becomes a burden. There's no joy there. Add-ons to the gospel are nothing more than empty religion. Philosophies where you're the king and God serves you because you're so good and so able. We don't want to go there. We don't want to live there. Philosophy, empty deceit, human traditions, they all mean one thing, captivity. (laughs) I thought I was learning these things so that I could just be free and no more. But it takes you captive because it takes your focus away from what you were taught. Instead of the fruit of the Spirit, you become controlled by culture. When you fail to examine and discern the best of the world's thinkers, scientists, professors, entertainers, politicians, world leaders, we start to see things according to what Paul calls the elemental things or spirits of this world. (laughs) When you read this, doesn't it give you a little bit of a shudder that you will fall to the elemental spirits of this world? There's a lot of unknowns about what this really means by um, people who study the word, but let's just say it's, uh, it's not holy. <laughs> that means that we must actively engage and see to it. You, think about this. Every movie you watch has a message. Every movie you watch has a message. They wouldn't have made the movie if they didn't want you to think something to believe something or feel something. Every movie has a message. Every book you read has a purpose. Every speech you hear, every message you hear has a purpose. When we passively entertain ourselves by watching a movie, that message actively plants into our brain. That's the way movies work. You know, your mind has a movie, and it's doing the same thing. Does this mean we don't watch movies? Well, some movies that you know will captivate you, you don't watch. But instead, we must watch those movies that will not captivate us, we don't know. We must watch them according to Christ. That means that we must actively seek out the message of that movie. You can't just watch and say, well, what did that mean? Nothing. Well, some movies might come up to that. That's what they wanted you to feel. Other movies you're going to come up with and you're going to understand that that person has a bent against God or against humanity or whatever. But bottom line is don't just sit there. Be active and see everything according to Christ. So where will your mind live? With what teachers, with which teachers will you dwell? With which spirit will you walk each day? The elemental spirits of this world or the spirit of God? Because you received him, walk in him and remember, it is God who works in you to will and to act in in order to fulfill his good purpose. You were made for a purpose, and that purpose is to know God. That purpose is to relate to God, to live with him so that he can show his glory to the world. That's why he continually grows his roots into your life. That's why he builds you up for the purposes you long to accomplish in this world. That's why he establishes you in his faith. Here's another passage that goes right with it. It says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Those spirits of this world, those elemental spirits of this world, they don't stand a chance when you live in the gospel, when you walk with Christ, when that is your focus, that is your heart. Check out this picture of what it means, seeing what seeing to it really means. This is an amazing passage. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Meanwhile, I sit back and I watch a movie and nothing happens. No demolishing, no taking captive. It's taking captive of me. Instead of passively accepting truth from sources other than God, instead of being taken captive by every thought, we must do the opposite and take captive of every thought. Paul wants you to be exhorted. He wants you to be aware. He wants you to see to it, to hear and see every message according to Christ. Jesus once said that it was his peace that he leaves with us, but his peace is not as the world gives. It's what he gives. If you're looking for peace or satisfaction from any message, any truth, whether it's science, philosophy, or whatever, any other message will not leave you with that peace. It's not as the world gives. Therefore, see to it that every message of teaching will not hold you captive by seeing everything according to Christ, and we will walk with him when that happens. We will. When we are seeing everything according to Christ, your receiving of him and learning from him, going back to that truth, you will walk with him and you will see everything. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, including that of the world, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You start to see how the Bible all comes together when we have all these things that God does and we get to just respond. That's the gospel message. In conclusion, remember this. God's best, the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that gives you freedom, gives you fullness, abundance, and fruit. The best the world can give you is to captivate you with empty thinking. It's to empty you, giving you a lack of purpose, and to leave you fruitless. Nothing good can come from this. Jesus came to give life and to give it overflowing abundantly. The good life truly is in Christ. Therefore, take this home with you. Rest in what you've received. Rest. Walk in the good news with gratitude. Evaluate any and every other truth according to Christ. Those are simple things we can remember, right? Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we didn't just have to accept you just so we could get into heaven, but that you walk with us, that you live with us, you've given us a purpose every day. I thank you, Lord, that you're not leaving us without instruction, you're not leaving us without teaching, you're not leaving us without truth, but you've given your truth through your word, through the Bible, you've given us the truth through the Spirit, and Father, you are 
continuing to teach that truth through teachers and through one another as we learn from one another. And I thank you, Lord, that we're not meant to be rooted alone. We're not meant to be established alone. We're not meant to be, meant to be built up alone. But we are meant to be built up together as a family, as brothers and sisters who have one Father. And we thank you for these truths, Lord. We ask that we would revel in these things throughout the next week. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.